Hello and welcome to this edition of Nightlight. In our last edition, I left you rather abruptly. <laughs> uh, I hated to have to do that, but we ran out of time, which means we ran out of tape. But uh, we were talking about the gift of fasting, and we were talking about the fact that Holy Spirit anointed and directed fasting, especially in intercession for the, the body of Christ and intercession for the purposes of God, uh, precipitates the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Based on Joel chapter 2, we saw that when God's people individually and corporately gather together in serious repentance and fasting and seeking God, that there is a direct relation to that and the outpouring that produces the the corn and the wine and the oil and restores the years that the locust and the caterpillar and the canker worm have eaten. But there was so much I didn't get to say there, and uh, I'm not going to carry on in this message on fasting because, first of all, Mary wisely pointed out to me that if people don't understand how to have a a lifestyle of quietness before God, some kind of uh, rabid attempt to jump into the heavier disciplines of fasting and the regimen of that kind of prayer life may be well-intentioned, but it may cause them to be more discouraged than uh, than strengthened. Uh, I'd like to read to you a statement from uh, James Lee Beale's book, The Adventure of Fasting, here in connection with this. Our purpose and our, our time together today is going to be not on fasting itself, but on the fact that we are called to live in the presence of the Lord and to, as much as we know how, yield every area of our lives to Him. Now, you know that. I know that. But knowing it and doing it, that's the big issue, isn't it? I mean, the whole struggle, struggle of our Christian life is to bring what we know into our doing that we might become the Word made flesh, that our flesh might manifest the truth of the presence of Jesus in us. And if we're not doing that, then we're just gathering information and our, our life becomes one big spiritual bookshelf full of unread books. Well, Dr. Beale says here, uh, fasting helped Jesus overcome the battle of the mind. Speaking of the temptation in Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. He says, fasting provided a way for the Lord <clears throat> to readjust his focus and to sort out his thoughts by focusing only upon his Father. He eliminated the pull of all other thoughts. And uh, then he goes on to say that the Lord Jesus deliberately abstained from any other reliance or even any other words than the voice of his father. He refused to allow his mind to run in all other directions, but channeled it deliberately by choice before the, his father. Uh, but centuries before that, the prophet Isaiah had linked mental discipline and peace of mind with fasting. Fasting, according to Isaiah and the other prophets, was a turning of the whole person away from self-centered routine and habit to a fresh encounter with God. It was a deliberate disruption to enhance new insight and bypass habitual hang-ups. Isaiah's words from chapter 58, verse 13, If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath and from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, 
and call the Sabbath your delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, and not speaking your own thoughts or, or your own words. Then the Lord says his blessing will be on that fast. Isaiah was telling the people of his day to welcome the fast which God has appointed, the rest which God wanted to give included resting from their own thought patterns. Now, when ordinary disciplines of the Christian life fail to keep our thoughts in check, extraordinary measures may be needed. Uh, James Beale goes on to say here, fasting may be in order. This particularly is so if the turn of our thinking takes a negative and unbelieving turn. We need a restoration of focus upon God, His goodness and His mercy. Fasting was never meant to be a substitute, though, for regularly practicing the presence of the Lord and regularly seeking God in the daily course of life. Rather, fasting was meant to be an intensification of that kind of life already practiced daily. He quotes Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on this subject, where Dr. Jones says, you should always keep your body under, as Paul said, but that does not mean you should always fast. Fasting is something unusual or exceptional, while living in the presence of the Lord should be perpetual and permanent. I therefore cannot accept such texts as, I keep my body under, and mortify your members which are upon the earth, as being references to fasting. In other words, moderation in everything and living in dependence on the presence of the Lord is uh, the way we should live our lives in a normal daily activity, and fasting is the exception. Failing to understand the difference between normal self-denial, which enables us to show moderation in all things, and fasting, which is an exceptional time of intensive focus upon God, leads to extremism instead of balance. Many people, uh, in my experience, and that's the end of the quote here from James Beale, but many people that I have pastored in times past, and I've been guilty of this myself, so I don't want to sound hyper-spiritual and talk about people I've pastored. Let's talk about clay. <laughs> but I know what it is to uh, go for a long period of time where I've allowed busyness or frustration or struggle in my life to crowd out the quietness of God's daily presence. And I'm not nourished in my spirit. So all of a sudden, I go into a half-cocked fit of sanctimonious self-discipline. I'm going to go off and fast for three or four or five days or uh, longer, and I'm going to I'm going to really get in there and it's like it's like somebody who sits around on the couch eating potato chips for a, a year, then all of a sudden they're going to go out and work out work out, and they're going to get in shape, and they go out and try to run three miles, well, they'll kill themselves. Uh, as it is in the in the natural, so it is in the spirit. There has to be a developing of these disciplines in our life. And I want to be very careful when I use the word discipline. I'm not talking about some kind of fleshly, gritting your teeth attempt at self-righteous uh, purification. When we speak of the Christian disciplines, we are talking about invitations of the Holy Spirit to us by God's grace, inviting us in to a place where we are given the gifts of uh, the Spirit. And this gifts of the Spirit I'm speaking of are not just tongues and healing and miracles, 
But there are also, as I mentioned last in our last nightlight, the name of the last nightlight, the gift of fasting. Yes, fasting most definitely is a gift. No tongue-in-cheek intended. There is no doubt that fasting is a gift. And there's no doubt that solitude and the invitation of the Holy Spirit to come away with him, quiet before him, is a gift. I think so often of the words in Song of Solomon, come away with me, my beloved, come away with me. And uh, when I hear the Holy Spirit whispering to me, come away with me, it's one of the most important words from the Lord I could ever hear. But you got to be careful when we talk about solitude. We're not talking about being aggravated at everybody and sick of them, so we're going to go off and somewhere and shut the door and lock people away. That's not the meaning of solitude. But uh, Mary's going to have a lot to say about what solitude is and what quietness is. But before uh, I turn it over to her, let me just show you just a few examples from the ministry of the Lord Jesus, how often he pulled away or he pulled his disciples away. Um, Quoting to you here from uh, Richard Foster's uh, excellent book, Celebration of Discipline, which I would, by the way, encourage all of you to read. He says here, uh, there is freedom to be alone, not in order to be away from people, but in order to hear the whisper of the Lord. Jesus lived in an inward solitude. He also frequently experienced outward solitude. Now, it's this inward solitude that so many of us have got to learn to do. We know a little bit about outward solitude. We know a little bit about coming away and being alone with the Lord and uh, you know, ge- you know, physically getting away from people and being unto the Lord. But our concern is for those many, many of us who don't have that opportunity very often, especially if you have a wife or husband or children or a full-time job. Getting away is is a luxury of the imagination. Well, there's got to be a way to learn to be at peace on the inside and to 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 be able to stay centered in Christ, even if you are surrounded by people. But Before we go on with that, uh, let me continue here with Richard Foster. He says, Jesus inaugurated his ministry by spending 40 days alone in the desert, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Before he chose the 12, he spent the entire night alone in the desert hills, Luke 6, 12. When he received the news of John the Baptist's death, he withdrew from there in a boat to a lonely place, Matthew 14, 13. After the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, Jesus went up into the hills by himself, Matthew 14, 23. Following a long night of work, in the morning a great while before day, he rose and went out to a lonely place, Mark 1, 35. When the 12 returned from a preaching and healing mission, Jesus instructed them, come away by yourselves to a lonely place, Mark 6, 31. Following the healing of a leper, Jesus, quote, withdrew to the wilderness and prayed alone, Luke 5, 16. With three disciples, he sought out the silence of a lonely mountain at the stage for the transfiguration, Matthew 17, 1 through 9. As he prepared for his highest and most holy work, Jesus sought the solitude of the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. And we could go on from there, but that should be enough biblical definition of the fact that solitude is most definitely part of the calling of every Christian. Now, Dr. Dallas Willard says concerning solitude, he says, quote, solitude frees us, actually. This, above all, explains its primacy and priority among the disciples of Jesus. 
The normal course of day-by-day human interactions locks us into patterns of feeling and thought and action that are geared to a world that is set against God. Nothing but solitude can allow the development of a freedom from the ingrained behaviors that hinder our integration into God's order. I think it's real important before we go any further just to stop a minute and to really invite the Lord in and ask him to help us to come to this place of of quiet, this place of stillness, this oasis of peace within where we have union with him. And what I'd like for you to do as I pray, just wherever you are, if you're driving or uh, working in the kitchen or wherever you might be, keep doing what you have to do, but just with your heart, listen to this prayer and just with your mind and your heart, struggle into this place. Decide with your will that you want to enter this place, even right now as we continue this tape. So, Lord Jesus, as we bow before you, And as I lift up the hearts of each one listening to this tape, I ask you to come and by your spirit, Lord, enable us to quiet ourselves within and to once again realize consciously that union that we have with you. Father, I pray that each one would be able to lie still on the deep insides, just like the earth under the spring rain. Father, I ask that each one listening would be able to soak in his presence. Father, I pray that you would sink down to the very roots of each one listening, deep into their inner life, and begin to fill the deep reservoirs of each of your sons and daughters. Father, to each heart, I just speak the words to lie still in God's hands and to wait God's pleasure. I pray this prayer in Jesus' name, remaining in his precious presence as we continue. Amen. You know, it says in in Psalms, I believe it's Psalm 46, verse 10, Be still and know that I am the Lord. If you look this meaning up in the Hebrew, it signifies more than just getting quiet and trying to understand. It signifies a struggle. It signifies uh, a paradox that there is a struggle where we have to enter into that rest, where we have to enter into that stillness. Actually, the Hebrew word here, to be still, also means to let the tension go out of our life. And that means to actively take hold and enter in to that place. And so often we, rather than try to consciously struggle there, we just want it to kind of descend upon us like some kind of cloud from heaven. And that's not the part that we're supposed to sit back passively and let God do to us. Yes, we have a union and a place within where the Prince of Peace and ourselves reside together in that holy place. Uh, Wherever that place is that you abide under the shadow of the Almighty, that secret place between you and Him. 
Yes, it's an incarnational giftedness, that home within. But there's a part that we have to play to stay centered in that place, to stay abiding with him. In one of Elizabeth Googe's books, I want to read a section from one of them. It's from uh, her first, one of her first books called Island Magic. And this is just to illustrate what I'm talking about, about our part that we play in entering in and struggling into this place of peace. After dinner, Rachel went up to her bedroom. She always went away by herself for a little at this time, and woe betide anyone who dared to disturb her. She guarded this little oasis of peace in her busy day fiercely and jealously. At other times of the day, work and servants and children were claiming her, and at night she was her husband's. This was the only time when she belonged to herself alone. Sometimes she felt that these few moments kept her sane. Her family thought that she lay down on her bed and rested, but she did not always do this. Sometimes she prayed, speaking words to God. Sometimes she read a little. But more often, she sat quite still with her hands lying in her lap and her eyes closed. Sometimes she would quietly murmur to herself as she sat, Underneath you are the everlasting arms, Rachel. And then she would feel her spirit sinking down and down through depths of tranquil light that grew cooler and sweeter the further she sank until she felt herself resting serenely against something, drawing in strength and peace through every fiber of her being. This lovely experience did not come to her always when she would sit still. It had come to her first one day when she had been in great physical pain that had almost wrenched her body and soul apart. She had been frightened that first time and thought she had been dying. It was as though my soul had come loose, she said to her husband afterwards. It came to her now whenever her life was very rigorously disciplined. At the slightest hint of self-indulgence, even in thought, it would take wings and flew from her. Only ceaseless struggle could keep it with her, but she struggled. Life without it was like a desert without wells. Both Rachel and her husband learned that peace that is not threatened has no value and thought that is not bought by pain has no depth. I don't know if you can hear in the background or not, but rain has come as we are recording this, and I think that that's quite apropos. It started about the time you were reading that thing about spring rain. (laughs) <laughs> I think God likes this. Do, do you see what, in Elizabeth Googe writing through her character in this book, Rachel, where she's able to pull away from the world and go into a room and just sit quietly? So often we think that our time spent with God has to be us praying or us reading scripture or us doing Bible study or us doing this, or doing that. What I'm talking about here is just coming away and being still. 
and not letting your mind go passive, but to struggle into that place of intimate union with the Lord by quietly letting yourself descend and feel yourself land against that rock, that strength, that rock of ages, that Lord of lords and King of kings, and just simply delight in the stillness of it, delight in the quietness of it, just simply delight in the union of being with Christ, you and him, with your heavenly Father, you and him, through the power and mystery of incarnation to celebrate this place within. And not only to physically pull away and be able to do this, but when we do enter this place, to struggle to continually keep it with us all the time. I know that for myself, if I didn't have that place of quiet within me, that place of union, that place where I practice his presence continually, that I would die. I, there's no way I could live this Christian life without living out of the reality of that quiet place within me. And at one time I had called it the eye of the storm, but I really think that's not the right way to call it because it's not the eye of the storm. It is the place where my eternal home is. It is the silence of eternal beauty and tranquility that we only have a shadow of in this world. And it's not something wedged between storm on both sides or storm all all around. It is a sacrament of something that's higher and more real and more heavenly and more eternal than we know how to touch or grasp or name or call on this side of heaven. So I don't like to call it the eye of the storm. I like to call it where I abide under the shadow of the Almighty, where I am hid under the wings of my Father, where I can taste and remember that home of heaven from whence I came and from whence I'm going. You know, we so often forget that we're eternal. We're eternal. Yes, we pass through the door of death in this life, but our spirits live forever. And what we live and how we live, and most important of all, what center we live out of shapes our whole life. And that's why Clay and I felt so strong about talking about this gift of silence, this gift of solitude, this gift of quiet, this gift of tranquility, this gift of the Prince of Peace. It's so easy for us to take a quality of Christ and make it bigger than Christ. And that's not what I'm trying to do here. But so often we talk about practicing the presence of Jesus, but we don't really understand what that means. And in this teaching, what we're trying to to communicate to you is a more practical way to practice that presence, to carry within you a place of eternal union every moment, a place where you can, in reality, hold forgiveness out in front of you, a place where you can, in reality, be at peace no matter what trauma or tragedy or uh, anxiety or frustration may hit you, that there is a place where you abide with Christ continually, that you have peace and comfort 
and tranquility, and you can draw on his strength on the very personhood of Jesus because he is the Prince of Peace. Uh, Let me just parenthetically say here that uh, I don't want anyone to misinterpret Mary's statement about our being eternal. She's not suggesting that we have a pre-existence before we are born to our parents uh, in a, the sense of some Mormon idea of uh, co-equality or co-eternality with God. She's obviously talking about the fact that the moment we come to Christ, we are vitally, really, honestly, in very practical terms, connected to the risen Lord, and our eternal life begins at that moment, and we are to live in the light of that even while still on this earth. But the thing that's really on our hearts today and has been on our hearts for quite some time is, and we talk about it together all the time, you know, Mary, I'll say, Mary, how how do we get this stuff that we're trying to talk about put in terms that people can actually do it? For instance, Mary just talked about, you know, we, we, we use the term all the time, practicing the presence. Well, how do you really do that? What does it really mean to practice the presence? <clears throat> and, and the reason we talk about how do you practice the presence, because if you learn to do that, all these other things will be added to you. So if we could help you learn to find that place of centering in Christ, that place of solitude within, that home within, uh, then, then you will learn out of that pool of wisdom, that uh, fl- river of living waters that flows up out of that center, you will learn all you need to know uh, to know how to live in uh, every situation, whether it's temptation or, or spiritual trial or demonic battle or struggling your emotional relationships or uh, the end of the world. I mean, literally, you, you will learn how to live. I'll tell you, folks, it's hard maybe for some people to to understand this, but there's two things I did not want to do when I was a kid. I did not want to travel, and I did not want to meet a bunch of new people. I had my life in a nice little parochial setting that was pretty well ordered, and I liked I liked boredom. I liked things to go pretty well the same every day. And I mean, I wouldn't call it boredom. I just call it stability. But other people would probably call it boredom. I, but I like things to be the same. I never liked for my mother, for instance, to change the furniture. It made me insecure. <laughs> if I had not learned how to be quiet and still, to have a home within, as Leanne Payne loves to to refer to it, uh, to if I had not learned how to have that home within, I could not possibly do the ministry that we're called to do. Uh, I could never uh, have the heart that I have for the other nations of the world. Uh, but when you begin to... See, this is what I'm trying to say to you about solitude. I, I know some of you guys listening to this who are in full-time ministry, you're going, man, I got I got the world to win. I don't have time to go sit off in a corner somewhere and be quiet by myself. Yeah, and that's just the kind of hyperactivity that will burn you out before you ever finish the first lap of your call of God on your life. Before you ever make it around the first lap of a 10-lap race, you'll be dead on the side of the, the, the track because you are moving in an activistic attempt to, uh, to, to move out of your own energy. Uh, I want to read to you a quote from Thomas Merton that directly deals with this attitude 
of uh, attempting to move out of our own strength and how solitude delivers us from that wrong-headed way of moving and actually how out of solitude our strength is renewed as the prophet Isaiah says they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength the young men shall fail and even your best runners shall fall but they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings as eagles they shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not faint. Thomas Merton says, quote, Society in the time of the Middle Ages was regarded by the Desert Fathers as a shipwreck from which each single individual man had to swim for his life. These were men who believed that to let oneself drift along passively accepting the tenets and values of what they knew as society was purely and simply a disaster. End quote. Uh, you may be able to hear behind us, beside the, the sound of thunder, the constant screaming and screeching of emergency vehicles. We don't know what has happened down the road, but it's not that uncommon for uh, this to happen two or three times a night in some days of the week. And uh, it seems to give us a perfect backdrop for what we're talking about tonight. You can't minister to the world if you are caught up in the world's screaming and the world's agony to the point that you are drowning with it. You can't save a drowning man by drowning with the man. Well, in Henry Nouwen's most excellent book called The Way of the Heart, he speaks concerning this situation that we're in in our culture and he likens it to the days of the Desert Fathers. Now, for those of you who don't know what we mean by the Desert Fathers, we're referring to those men and women uh, of the early Middle Ages who recognized that their culture had been so taken over by darkness that for them to be able to be for the world, they were going to have to be first against the world. And the way to be against the world for the world's sake was to get out of the world in order to be able to be uh, spiritually strong enough to go back into the world with something valuable to give the world. I would like to read to you an extensive quote here from Henry Nouwen's prologue concerning this uh, wisdom of the Desert Fathers and uh, liken it to our own present situation. He says, quote, in just a few years, we will celebrate the second millennium of the Christian era. But the question is, will there be anything to celebrate? Many voices wonder if humanity can survive its own destructive powers. As we reflect on the increasing poverty and hunger, the rapidly spreading hatred and violence within as well as between countries, and the frightening buildup of nuclear weapons systems, we come to realize that our world has embarked on a suicidal journey. We are painfully reminded of the words of John the Evangelist from John chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. The word, the true light, was coming into the world, the world that had its being through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not accept him. It seems that the darkness is thicker than ever, that the powers of evil are more blatantly visible than ever, and that the children of God are being tested more severely than ever. Thank you, Lord, for that sound effect. 
During the last few years, Henry Nowen goes on to say, I've been wondering what it means to be a minister in such a world. What is required of men and women who want to bring light into the darkness, to bring good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to captives and the blind new sight, to set the downtrodden free and proclaim the Lord's year of favor, Luke four eighteen and 19. What is required of men and women who are called to enter fully into the turmoil and agony of the times and speak a word of hope? It is not difficult to see that in this fearful and painful period of our history, we who minister in parishes, schools, universities, hospitals, and prisons, etc., are having a difficult time fulfilling our task of making the light of Christ shine in the darkness. Many of us have adapted ourselves too well to the general mood of lethargy. Others among us have become tired, exhausted, disappointed, bitter, resentful, or simply bored. And boredom, by the way, and this is Clay's edition, may be the greatest danger of all. Now continuing to quote Henry Nowen. Still others have remained active and involved, but have ended up living more in their own name than in the name of Jesus Christ. This is not so strange. The pressures in the ministry are enormous. The demands are increasing and the satisfactions are diminishing. How can we expect to remain full of creative vitality, of zeal for the word of God, of desire to serve, and of motivation to inspire our often numb congregations? Where are we supposed to find nurture and strength? How can we alleviate our own spiritual hunger and thirst? These are the concerns I should like to address in the following pages. I hope to offer some ideas and some disciplines that may be of help in our efforts to remain vital witnesses of Christ in the coming years. Years that no doubt will be filled with temptations to unfaithfulness, a comfortable self-centeredness, or despair. But where shall we turn? We could turn to many of the mystic writers and Christian thinkers. They all have much to say. But I'm interested in a more primitive source of inspiration, which by its directness, simplicity, and concreteness can lead us without any byways right to the core of our struggle. These are the wisdom of who, those who were once called the Desert Fathers. Those who lived in the Egyptian desert during the 4th and 5th centuries can offer us a very important perspective on our life as ministers living at the end of the 20th century. The Desert Fathers, and there were mothers too, were Christians who searched for a new form of martyrdom. Once the persecutions had ceased... It was no longer possible to witness for Christ by following him as a blood witness. Yet the end of the persecutions did not mean that the world had accepted the ideals of Christ and altered its ways and repented. The world continued to prefer darkness to light. But if the world was no longer the enemy of the Christian, then the Christian had to become the enemy of the dark world. The flight to the desert was the way to escape the tempting conformity to the world. Anthony, Agathon, Poimen, Theodora, Sarah, these leaders of the spiritual movement in the desert, here they became a new kind of martyr, witnesses against the destructive powers of evil, witnesses for the saving power of Jesus Christ, 
their spiritual commentaries, their counsel to visitors, and their very concrete disciplinary practices form the basis of the reflections in the pages that you hold in your hand. This is the only way they had in their mind to discover the will of God and to know what would be his good and perfect will for their lives. It was necessary for them to flee, to be silent, and to pray in order for them to be able to return, lift up their voices, and make a difference for the purposes of God in their generation. End quote. And what I would like to say to you folks, whether you are pastoring or whether you are trying to raise your children, whether you are a housewife or whether you are the bishop of a denomination, we know in the core of our being, whether we are in a renewal church that is enjoying the blessing of God or whether we are in a dead denomination that is fighting for its life and uh, losing ground day by day, If we know Jesus Christ and love him and want to serve him, there has got to be in every one of us an awareness of the call of the Holy Spirit to every listening man or woman of God to come away with me. Simplify your life. Throw off the excess baggage. Get quiet. Don't be so peripheral. Quit being so shallow. Quit depending on entertainment. Stop looking for the weekend to provide for you through entertainment and interaction with people and going out and uh, watching a ball game, etc., to renew your spirit. You're not going to find renewal in those things. In themselves, they're not bad, but they are not good either. They are not strong enough to restore the spirit. It's going to take a living, daily learning and, and a, a discipline of focusing on it until it becomes a part of your flesh, till it becomes a part of your very spirit and soul and body to practice the presence of the Lord in very real, daily, practical ways. Not just to know the phrase and quote it or have the book on the shelf by Brother Lawrence, but to really begin to live it in the very battles of life when everything in you is tempted to forget all that spiritual stuff and just fight the world with the world's weapons. This is a, a poem I'd like to read. It's by an unknown author. Dwell deep when doubts assail and stealthy shadows creep across your sky and fill you with a sense of doom and thunders roar and lightnings frighten with their glare, and old foundations seem to crumble beneath your feet. Dwell deep and rest your soul amid eternal things. Upon the surface, storms may rage and billows break on every beach of life and fling disaster far and wide. But if your soul is dwelling quiet in the depths, naught can harm you evermore. Therefore, dwell deep and rest your head upon the heart of God. You know, it's God that gives this gift, and it's an incarnational gift. We have to struggle into that place of quiet and struggle into that place of finding that inner chamber deep within. Now, this struggle to find a place of solitude within... Think about it, folks. 
that's a phrase. See, that's one of those poetic phrases that can so easily become a misty, foggy thing that floats in your ear while you're listening to this tape and floats out the other side and never finds a place of real practicality within you. How do you find a quiet place within? What does that mean? Most people hear that and they say, hey, we get mail. I tried this practice in the presence. I tried to be still. I nearly lost my mind. I tried to get quiet. I couldn't do it. I, I, I couldn't last five minutes. And I always, I always tell people, or I write back to them, and I say, you know, what is the greatest punishment in the prison system? It's solitary confinement. Solitude, solitary, does that ring any bells? They are connected. How can it be that the desert fathers fled to solitude in order to escape the corruption of the world so that they might maintain their sanity, maintain their spiritual equilibrium, maintain and increase their spiritual strength so that they might turn around and go back to the world they had fled with a message for it of redemption. And yet the average person uh, in the prison system is terrified of solitary solitary confinement. How, How can that be? It's because there is a deep crevice within us that we are terrified to look at when it comes to dealing with uh, getting alone and being quiet. You see, in order to get to solitude, you must first pass through the desert of loneliness. Loneliness is not solitude. It's actually the very opposite of it. But most people, when they hear the word solitude, think solitary confinement. They think of it in terms of some kind of punishment <clears throat> because most of us can't dare be alone with ourselves. You've heard Mary and I talk about that a thousand times, but I want us to focus in on it. I don't want to just talk about it in a passing statement. I want to zero in on it for a few minutes, folks, because I'm telling you this is where your healing lies this is where the power to change is. Some of you who are listening to this are struggling to receive deeper healing for very bad struggles in your life, sexual problems, emotional problems, etc. There are others of you who are not necessarily focused on some neurotic struggle, but you are painfully aware that there's deeper depths in you that need to be yielded up to God, and you're longing to know how to change how to become a man or woman of God in a deeper, richer, more meaningful way. So in regardless of which category you fall into, and we all probably fall into both categories at some time or other, we need to understand that there's only one way to do it, and that is a face-to-face encounter with the living God, not with books about it, <clears throat> not with tapes about it, but with the real God dealing with the real you. But it's frightening for some people. In fact, it's frightening for all people. I want to read you another statement here by Dallas Willard. He says, uh, concerning the the fact that solitude is actually uh, the beginning of all of the, the, the disciplines of Christian living that can produce real change in us. But he points out the fact that there are, there's a chasm in us that opens up once we enter into solitude. Let me read it to you here. He says, Solitude is a terrible trial, 
for it serves to crack open and burst apart the shell of our superficial securities. It opens out to us the unknown abyss that we all carry within us and discloses the fact that those abysses are haunted. He's quoting there from Thomas Merton. Then Dr. Willard goes on to say, quote, We can only survive solitude if we cling to Christ there. And yet what we find of him in that solitude enables us to return to society as a free man or a free woman. Now, one of the testimonies of one of the early desert fathers concerning this facing of the abyss within had to do with the fact that uh, one called Father Elias set himself to be alone with God and to go into the desert to seek the Lord. But when he got there, instead of having a great, enjoyable time of solitude with the Lord, he found himself in a terrible spiritual battle. Henry Nouwen records this battle, and I'd like to read just a part of it for you here. I hope it'll illustrate the point that we're trying to make. What I'm trying to say to you folks is, if, if you hear this tape that Mary and I are sending you, and you say, I, 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 I want to get alone with God, I want to get serious, I want to do this, I want to do this, and you go and you try to do it, and, and you, you end up in a worse mess than you were before you turn the tape on. Blessed are you. Listen to this. Here is the struggle. It is the struggle to die to the false self. But this struggle is far, far beyond our own strength. Anyone who wants to fight his demons with his own weapons is a fool. The wisdom of the desert is that the confrontation with our own frightening nothingness forces us to surrender ourselves totally and unconditionally to the Lord Jesus Christ. Alone, we cannot face the mystery of iniquity with impunity. Only Christ can overcome the powers of evil, and that is not only demonic evil, but human, your evil, human evil. Only in and through him can we survive the trials of our solitude. This is beautifully illustrated by Father Elias, who said, quote, An old man was living in a temple, and the demons came to say to him, Leave this place which belongs to us. But the old man said, No place belongs to you. Then they began to scatter his palm leaves about one by one, and the old man went on gathering them together with persistence. A little later, the devil took his hand and pulled him toward the door. When the old man reached the door, he seized the lentil with the other hand, crying out, Jesus, save me. Immediately, the devils fled, and the old man began to weep. Then the Lord said to him, Why are you weeping? And the old man said, Because the demons have dared to seize a man and, th- and treat him the way they've treated me. And the Lord said to him, You have been careless. As soon as you turned to me again, you see that I was beside you all along. This story shows that, not, that, that only in the context of the great encounter with Jesus Christ himself can a real, authentic struggle take place. The encounter with Christ does not take place before, after, or beyond the struggle with our false self and its demons. 
No, it is precisely in the midst of this struggle that our Lord comes to us and says, as he said to the old man in the story, as soon as you turn to me again, you see that I was beside you. What I hope this little story illustrates to you folks is that when you are, you go in to pray and you, you're going to be alone with God and you're going to really press in and do the stuff instead of just listening to it. You're going to do it instead of just read about it. You're going to have that time with God. You're going to spend that time alone. You're going to fast. You're going to pray. You're going to press in. You're going to write in your journal. You're going to do all the things you've been hearing people like me and Mary and other teachers talk about that will bring fullness of hope and fullness of joy and restoration and healing and overcoming sexual temptation and breaking the power of neurosis, etc., etc. And it all sounds so good in the pep rally. And then you get on the ball field and the first guy hits you and you say, I don't know if I want to do this or not. It is in the battle that you encounter the real Jesus that you've been hearing us talk about. So blessed are you when the battle is hot. Blessed are you when you go in to pray. Those of you who have had sexual struggles, for instance, you go in to pray, and the minute you hit your knees, all you feel is lust. The minute you hit your knees, all you feel is the desire to go cruising. Or, or if you've been a, an alcoholic or a drug addict, the minute you get quiet and alone, the first thing you feel is the temptation to go medicate your aloneness because you have hit the abyss within that is so empty and haunted by powers of darkness. I don't mean you're demon-possessed. I mean the powers of darkness knows the, the false self, and they know they can manipulate you. They know they can torment you. They know that you're a novice in the things of the Spirit, and they come to manipulate manipulate you by the five senses and by your appetites and by your feelings and your old memories and they come to play on those old memories and the Holy Spirit is there waiting to teach you how to become a man or woman of spiritual strength if you'll listen in the midst of the battle. How could we possibly be surprised that progress in spiritual maturity takes place in the discomfort of the heat of battle? How do we, why is it that we don't understand that it's going to require a pressing into these things before we come to the quiet, gentle, peaceful places? You may have to pass through some battles before you are able to sit still. It was years of walking through these things before I ever came to a point where I could spend long, peaceful, quiet times with God without being tormented or mistreated by my enemies, either the enemy of the of the demonic nature or the enemy of my own fleshly mind refusing to forgive myself. Uh, but by the grace of God, the Lord brought me through that. I still have times when I have to go back and, and uh, remember the very things I'm saying to you. But you've got to be aware of the whiny self-pity that shrinks back from this and says, I don't want to have to fight anymore. I need some rest. Mary mentioned a while ago, there's a paradox in this. We struggle, according to Hebrews chapters 2, 3, and 4, we struggle to enter in to that rest. Isaiah thirty fifteen says, In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Do you see what words are coupled in this scripture? In repentance and rest. Yeah, the struggle that's involved in getting to the place of rest sometimes has to be the struggle to own your own sin 
and to confess it and repent of it. And then to be able to rest in the confidence that you've received that forgiveness. And repentance and rest is your salvation. And quietness and trust is your strength. And let me tell you, to trust takes effort. It takes effort of your own will to turn your face upward and to choose to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to set your face towards him and to choose life in Jesus Christ. Trusting is active. It's not something that's passive. So in quietness and trust is your strength. Do you see how the paradox of our Christian life is the very core of mystery, really, out of which uh, life flows from heaven down to us through Christ. The way up is the way down. Uh, the way to get life is to first lose it. The way to lead is to serve. The way to life is to die. The way to enter into peace is first to struggle. It's something that we have to actively take hold of we choose with our hearts to work out that life of the Prince of Peace within us. We take by the horns of the altar, so to speak, all the energies and capabilities, the personality, the motivations, our characters, every part that is ours on the human side of incarnation to struggle into the place of living the Christ life, of knowing who Christ is, and of living that life through our human abilities. And that means we have a big part in it. What we do so often is get it flip-flopped. We think we've got to do first before we get to that place of rest. Well, there's a truth in that, in that you have to struggle through the agony of recognizing you're a sinner, that you sin, that things get in the way, that there's going to be all kinds of stuff hitting you before you can get to that place of quietness within and that place of, of safety and union and a sense of home within. Sure, it takes that, but that strength comes from Him. That strength is not simply a gift. It's the giver of the gift. It's Jesus Christ Himself that gives us His strength to live. It's in him that we live and move and have our being. It's in him that our strength and our peace and our trust and our faith and our life and our love flows from. So we take those things that he has given us and we, with all our strength and might, use those to enter into those places that most manifest his life through us. Now this is Psalm 91. Remember Nightlight two months ago on Psalm 91? He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, my God. In Him will I trust. This is practicality. Uh, this is how we actually make that verse a, a, a real living reality in our lives. And let me tell you, if you will begin to do these things, you will find in the time of great pressure, whether it is temptation to sin or whether it is loneliness or whether it is betrayal or whether it is trauma or tragedy or a, 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 the end of the world, like I told you, or maybe the end of your world in death. 
you will find that because you have been preparing every day, that when the time of great trial comes, there is a resource within you that has been built up, a capital, because there has been investment made in the days when things are not tragic. When the tragedy comes, there is a capital inside of you upon which you can draw. Colossians 3 verse 15 says this, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Let the peace of Christ rule. That's really what we're saying here. We need to recognize that the peace, the quiet, the solitude, the gift of tranquility is from the Lord. It's incarnational. It's part of his personhood. And Father, we ask you to let us enter into this rest.